the Y curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. Is Miranda safe? If Rishi Sunak's bill passes, it will be. Whether it is or it isn't. Confused? Yes. Well, so is much of the legal world. How can the security of a foreign country be defined in English law? But, okay. How safe is Rwanda, really? Is it the forward-thinking, modernising poster child of an African tech renaissance? Or a dictatorship built on the ruin of a genocide whose leader assassinates his rivals and tolerates no real opposition? Is it the sort of place you can confidently send people who fled halfway around the world in search of asylum and safety? The why curve. Well, I mean, obviously, you know, the the Tory party uh, have a bit of a love affair with Rwanda. Well, they must think it's all just beautiful and idyllic and, uh, you know, the best place in the world to be. But also, they don't want it to be the best place in the world to be because they want it to be a disincentive. So which one is it? Ah, that's mm. the other thing. Yes, you'll get mm. sent to Rwanda. Why should I be worried? That's a lovely place. Yes, go there. No, no. You know, you don't. It's, it's, it's very a confused messages. It's it? psychology is weird. But you're right about the love affair thing. This is really interesting because mm. it goes right the way back to just after the genocide 1994 because the ministers ever since their Tory ministers even new Labour ministers have been going out there digging in the fields and things it's a kind of almost a, 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 a rite of passage at the beginning for Tory ministers because I think they wanted to show a place in Africa where development aid had gone and which worked mm. in order to justify spending more money on aid so uh, Kagami is he is he a charismatic man? Then is is this why? Oh, yes. So they pulled the wall over his uh, over. He's pulled the wall over there. I I think so. I mean, I, I, I was interesting seeing Linda Chalker, who was the development secretary way back in the nineties, definitely had a thing. Well, let's not go. Let's not be a, a but, thing. Well, wow. she she liked him. Um, Claire Short <laughs> uh, in the late New Labour, she certainly thought he was okay, and you know they tended to believe what he told. He knew what buttons to press. He knew mm. what to tell them. Right. Uh, the things to say that would encourage them. Right. But, uh, you know, he, he is, I mean, let's be honest about it. My view, we're going to hear from an expert in a moment. In my view, he is a dictator. Yeah. And, uh, you know, his country, if you really believe that it is the kind of place where people will be sent and be safe, I think... You know, without giving the game, I don't think think that's a sustainable position. And wars don't just finish, do they? I mean, there's always uh, simmering tensions. So, uh, and, you know, just in this last week or so, we've had uh, an argument over a a Congolese uh, fighter jet that was shot at uh, by the Rwandans. Rwandans. And, I mean, it landed safely. But, I mean, so there's still tensions in that. And and obviously, you know, they're coming up for elections uh, in in the Congo as well. And the Congolese leader is saying, you know, that uh, he is like Hitler. Well, Uh, I'm talking about Kagame. Yeah, yeah. because of his support of the you know rebels, but, in but East, this has been East. going on for decades and decades. You know, mm. there's been a kind of proxy war going on in DRC, which the UN certainly thinks is encouraged and, and possibly even run by Rwanda. I mean, this is the thing. It's not like nobody knows that this is what's going on. Mm. The Metropolitan Police uh, at one point warned opposition uh, Rwandan opposition figures in London they they couldn't protect them and that there were potentially Rwandan operatives who wanted to kill them. And you know, this is with a government with which we have this. Very close financial relationship, apart from anything else. But there are a lot of uh, Congolese refugees in mm-hmm. Rwanda as well, which has been yeah. facilitated by the UNHCR. So you're getting some people saying, well, look, if the UNHCR thinks that Rwanda is safe enough to send refugees from uh, Congo, then why should it be a problem? Well, I think the refugees end up there because that's where they flee to, rather yeah. than necessarily the UN next putting door. them there, because yeah. it's next door. But, I mean, yes, there have been schemes. Uh, I think it was Denmark and Israel, in fact, put people there before. Neither of those schemes 
worked terribly I don't think Denmark well. ever did. No, so, Denmark. no, so we know Denmark did. They they mm. had a conversation, but they never actually sent anybody. No. I'm not sure they sent quite the same scandalous amount of money that we did before they decided, because they had to change the government since then as well. So the whole thing's been, uh, been yeah. abandoned. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the intention was, but I don't think they ever did. But those refugees from Congo are being resettled out. There's the difference, isn't it? So they're going into... Mm. So the UNHCR is actually helping to resettle those people to other countries. So the USA, Norway, New Zealand, yeah. Australia, Netherlands, Not France, in Rwanda. But then Rwanda Finland. probably doesn't want them. Probably doesn't want yeah, them. Yeah, well, that's it. They're, they're going It's sort of like a temporary stop, whereas we are one of the few places that's talking about, well, no, it's not a temporary stop. We want you to stay there and uh, live the rest of your and life. And we've been out to see that it's wonderful and everything's good and Rwandan asylum laws are perfectly fine. And a very charismatic man who's running the country well, as well. One scratches one's head. But anyway, let's talk to someone who really knows all about this in some detail. Michaela Rong is a journalist who spent decades writing about Africa. She's also the author of Do Not Disturb, which is a book about the murder of a Rwandan dissident leader. And she joins us now. So uh, it, it seems like uh, Kagame has sort of moulded this this future as uh, as his country being a, being a home for refugees. I mean, they already have quite a few, obviously a lot from Congo. Uh, but this idea that they're going to take them from, from here, I mean, Denmark's uh, sort of played around with the idea for a little bit as well. Do you think this is this is part of his plan for the country that he's going to you know get a lot of money from overseas and uh, perhaps use it to populate the country, but also bring in extra revenue? Is that the the big plan here? I think um, Kagame is very clever at playing the West, um, and what he does is he identifies areas of vulnerability, kind of Western obsessions, Western <laughs> paranoias, Western concerns. Terms. And then he he offers a solution. You know, he presents his, himself as the African answer. Um, and then they're pathetically grateful and sort of fall around his neck and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. So um, uh, at the moment, he's playing the immigration card because he's correctly identified that that's a real concern, you know, that populism is on the rise in in, in Western Europe and almost every country, um, every government is is offering and promising its um its voters that it will be tough on immigration. So he's so a he good does. salesman in that case. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 brilliant. It really is brilliant. Before uh, he was playing immigration, he was playing the peacekeeper card, uh, and that is also also a Western preoccupation because the West is, is terrified as what it sees happening in the Sahel um, uh, across Western Africa where jihadism, extremist uh, Islam is, is sort of um, galloping uh, through one country after another, often toppling, uh, you know, playing its role in the in the toppling of civilian governments and takeovers by military um, uh, by the militaries in those countries. And and he, he has been able to say to the West, listen, you know, Rwandan uh, uh, soldiers are the best in the world, uh, well, the best in Africa, put it that way, uh, and we will deploy as peacekeepers and we'll keep the jihadists at bay. So up until, um, you know, about a year and a half, two years ago, that was the card he was playing. And then immigration came along and he started playing that. Uh, and, and the Brits went for it. And then what you're seeing is many other Western countries are saying, oh, you know, that's a good idea. We can yeah, do the same on the thing. Bandwagon. Well, I mean, let's, let's just do a little bit of, of new reading to start here, because there will be people listening who don't know, that obviously, the history of Rwanda. Now, Paul Kagame came to power in 94 after the genocide and civil war and has been in power ever since. I mean, just give us a sense of where Rwanda has come from in this mechanic. And what his, what his involvement was as yeah. well in the, in the build-up to 94. What was his involvement during that genocide? Yes. Well, um, what happened is um, that uh, in, you have 
to go way back to the 1960s. Um, and in the early, well, 1959, 1960, um, uh, the uh, Tutsi monarchy uh, of, of Rwanda um, and uh, Kagame actually came from a, a, a member of that aristocracy. They were expelled from the country um, and the uh, they were the elite um, uh, the uh, elite minority, the Tutsis, and uh, they were expelled from the country and the Hutu majority took over. Um, and at that stage, it was still, Rwanda was still a Belgian colony. Um, and uh, people like uh, Paul Kagame were brought up in exile uh, in refugee camps in Uganda, in Burundi, in what was then Zaire. Um, and they always dreamed of going home. And they were members of this uh, there's a kind of Israeli element to this whole story, uh, because uh, a Zionist element, because it was like, we're going to go home, uh, back to our homeland. You know, we've been rejected. We've been thrown out of uh, out of paradise um, and, and we have the right to, to go back home. And uh, and in uh, the 80s, um, uh, secretly, um, uh, people like Paul Kagame, who um, had uh, become part of Yoweri Museveni's um, defense establishment, they uh, secretly set up the Rwandan Patriotic Front, uh, and it was a little um, rebel organization um, inside the Ugandan army. Uh, and in 1990, they invaded Rwanda, uh, which was run by the Hutu president, Juvenal Habyarimana. Uh, and then there was this four-year civil war in which the Rwandan Patriotic Front, uh, uh, in which uh, you know Paul Kagame had taken the lead of it, was encroaching and sort of heading south and that that played its part in creating this sort of atmosphere of of uh, ethnic um, tension between the minority Tutsis and the majority Hutus. Um, and then what happened is you have the downing of a, a plane in which Juvenal Habyarimana, the president of, of Rwanda, was traveling in April 1994. And that triggers the genocide in which members of the Hutu army and Hutu militias and often ordinary Rwandans turned on their Tutsi neighbors um, and slaughtered them because they were convinced that they were all in cahoots with the advancing rebels and that they were going to the you know kill the Hutu members of the Hutu majority so it was um, and and that was you know the worst bloodletting we we've, we've seen in the, the 20th century I mean yeah but 800,000 people or so died yeah, in that there's a huge dispute feeling. over the figures uh, yeah. but it was absolutely shocking and most of the the killings took place in in three months um and they were carried out using machetes and hose. It wasn't terribly high tech. Um, and um, while that was happening, there was a civil war being fought between uh, the Hutu-controlled army and the militias and the RPF, um, Kagame's Rwandan Patriotic Front, uh, and eventually the Rwandan Patriotic Front took over, won that battle, uh, and all the, uh, the Hutu armies and militias taking the population with them, the Hutu population fled into neighboring Zaire and Tanzania. So it was incredibly, I mean, you were there, Roger, I believe. I, I, I was. Yes. Yes. Uh, and it was an incredibly turbulent yeah. and fast moving um, period in, in the history of the Great Lakes. And to a certain extent, you know, the Great Lakes has never recovered from that. Um, and uh, I think Kagame has managed to um, sort of play that genocide card very, very successfully because what he, he always presents himself to the West 
he sort of says, I'm the person who brought peace um, uh, and stability to Central Africa and to Rwanda. And look how I've rebuilt the... the, the it's the guilt card as well, isn't it? Because he's, yeah. he's saying, you guys didn't intervene. Yeah. That's why it happened. Because you, uh, the UN actually pulled out its troops as the slaughtering was started. Uh, and, it, and it then went back in. But by that stage, you know, most people were dead. So the international community um, has always... It, it, it let ordinary Rwandans down, and it did. And he and he does sort of throw that constantly in their face whenever his human rights record um, is brought up as a as a as a topic. The 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 problem though is that you know um, it's not as though he has clean hands himself because there was uh, there's more and more evidence that has emerged of ethnic cleansing when the RPF was sweeping down south through Rwanda. And what we also know, I, that, I certainly saw evidence yeah. of that myself uh, at the time. I remember right and. And what we know is in Congo, when at a certain stage, the Rwandan army, uh, you know, under Kagame's control, invaded, um, uh, set up a rebel movement in Congo, uh, the AFDL, uh, and they invaded the east of the country to break up those enormous refugee camps that had been formed where the the Hutu um, civilians, but also Hutu fighters and Hutu former uh, Hutu soldiers uh, had gathered. Um, And we know that they were one massacre after another. That's been very well documented by the UN. And those were carried out by Kagame's soldiers and by the rebels that they were supporting. So this is a man who has copious blood on his hands, but whenever he plays the genocide card, of course, he always makes it clear that, you know, his people, his Tutsi minority, were the main victims of that bloodletting. And therefore, you know, his authoritarianism, his hardline is totally justifiable because, you know, they came back from the brink of extinction. So whoever's to blame, I mean, it's very difficult to imagine that you'd have uh, a a massive genocide like that and then you just have peace for eternity beyond that. So, And they are coming up for an election in uh, DRC and the Congolese leader has, you know, said he is like... uh, Talking about Kagame. Comparing him to Hitler, saying, you know, he's backing the rebels in the east of Congo, he's got expansionist aims. If he is re-elected, then he's going to stop that happening. And then we had, uh, see in the news, that a shot was fired at a fighter jet from Congo uh, by the Rwandans by the Rwandans it's you know it managed to land but I mean clearly there's tensions still simmering there aren't there Yes, and I think that's what I find so frustrating because everyone is talking about the Rwanda asylum sol- uh, policy, but but there's precious little attention being paid to what Rwanda is doing within um, its own region and also within its own borders. Because as as you just said, um, it's a very bad neighbour. I mean, it, it has uh, repeatedly supported rebel groups that have invaded uh, neighbouring Congo. Um, uh, this has been going on now for a year and a bit. Um, I was just reading the latest dispatches from Eastern Congo and the rebel movement, it supports the M23, has created 500,000 refugees in Eastern Congo since October. So we are proposing to send you know, God knows how many, not very many uh, asylum seekers to Rwanda, one of the most overpopulated and tense, politically tense countries in Africa, which is actually creating half a million uh, displaced people in, in neighbouring Eastern Congo. And, and the other element that we, we tend to forget about here in the UK is, as uh, you know, we the West is is paying for those displaced people to be fed and, 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 and accommodated in these rather 
ghastly um, uh, displaced people's camps in eastern Congo because they, they've had to flee their villages um, as this um, rebel movement, the M23, um, has advanced. So on the one hand, we're paying for these, these displaced people, um, but we know that the Rwandan government uh, is responsible for them being displaced from their villages because it's arming and equipping and giving orders to the M23 rebel movement. And at the same time, we're presenting Rwanda as a safe haven for, for our asylum seekers. Well, even worse than that, we, I mean, the, 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 you know, the government supporting media in this country are saying, well, look, you know, we can send uh, refugees there because the UNHCR is facilitating lots of uh, refugees already in Rwanda. And it's talking about the Congolese uh, that have been resettled in Rwanda, perhaps as a result of that conflict that, that we're talking about. And actually, most of them are then sent by the UNHCR to third countries. They don't stay in Rwanda. They go after the, the States or Norway or New Zealand, a whole, whole load of countries. We're not included in that list of course so i mean there's the, you know there's falsehoods being told around this isn't there yes and they, and people are getting things mixed up because for example they talk about oh you know rwanda that the un praised rwanda for taking uh, a, a bunch of refugees from libya um, uh, and that, you know, um, uh, the, the UN uh, officials toured around Rwanda and said, oh, isn't it marvellous they've taken these people. They they took those people in extremists and they did step up to the plate, the Rwandan government, and they said, we will take these people from these detention centres in Libya. But but that was because the UN was desperate to find somewhere to, to put those people because of uh, security conditions had broken down so appallingly in, in Libya. And they were appealing to countries to to take them in, um, and that's a completely different setup. It's a different circumstances, and, and you know the people in those detention centres were not complaining. Whereas we know damn well that the people that we're going to be trying to send to Rwanda are going to be fighting it tooth and nail. Well, indeed, and, and on that point, I mean, we talked about the external, the history. We talked about the external relations, but what about within Rwanda? What kind of regime? What kind of setup is there in Paul Kagame's? Rwanda. What kind of a country is it in terms of law and rights and things like that? Well, yes, uh, this is the other element that really frustrates me, because what happens is people go to Rwanda, they get off um, at, at, at a very nicely rebuilt uh, <laughs> um, airport, uh, and what they see is an incredibly neat, tidy, clean um, uh, capital city uh, where every flower bed is being tended, where all the, the curbs are being repainted. I mean, I've seen it for myself. Uh, and there's a policeman, uh, you know, or an army soldier at regular intervals. And it feels like, you know, people will often use the phrase the Switzerland of Africa. Um, uh, and firstly, uh, you know, what they don't realize is that's a very small part of Rwanda. That's just the road from the airport to their conference uh, hotel, you know, the hotel where they'll be be visiting. But 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 also, this is not this is not the experience, you know, uh, of people who live inside Rwanda. What, what uh, Rwandan citizens experience is, firstly, it's an incredibly poor country. It, it, it's, it's, you know, regularly listed amongst the sort of 20th poorest countries in, in, in Africa. Uh, sorry, in the world by the IMF. It's, it's a massively uh, uh, overpopulated. Uh, it's got the most dense um, population of, uh, I think, anywhere in Africa apart from the, the Nile Valley. Um, 
unemployment's extremely high. But then let's look at the human rights record, which has been denounced in the past by governments, um, uh, including Britain's. And you have a situation where um, uh, all the press is in the uh, is is basically being controlled by the government. There's no such thing as an independent press. The people who've tried to be independent journalists are in prison. They're YouTubers and 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 bloggers who are serving 15 year prison terms in some cases. Um, the the, um, the woman who used to be the head of the opposition spent eight years in jail um, uh, and can't leave the country now. She's now under, uh, you know, under surveillance in her house. Uh, but she 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 is disqualified from standing in future elections because of of, of the prison term she was. Uh, she- she was given for supposed insurrection. Um, uh, the the judiciary is completely politicized. I mean, and this is one of the points that the Supreme Court um, made in its ruling. It was very interesting on the fact that there was interference, political interference in the running of uh, of the courts in Rwanda. And that was why, you know, it wasn't a safe place where it wasn't a place where asylum appeals against asylum processes could be heard. Um, uh, so at every every area that you look at and you know and then the, the final thing which is the, the 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 topic of my book do not disturb is the fact that rwanda like israel like saudi arabia like russia is one of the few countries in the world that actively and energetically chases its dissidents and critics uh, abroad and hunts them down and in several cases has successfully assassinated them. Yeah, well, there's been uh, warnings in this country, hasn't there, from the, from yes, the police? Uh, yes, yeah. back in 2010, four Rwandan members of the Rwandan opposition who were living here were, were given uh, warnings, official warnings by the Metropolitan Police who went to their homes and said, you know, and said, you, we are warning you, your government wants you dead. Your life is in danger. We cannot give you 24-hour-a-day uh, protection. You need to take your own precautions. Uh, and that's happened in the UK. Uh, similar things have happened in Belgium, in France, uh, in South Africa. Several of those um, those critics and, and dissidents were targeted. Well, One you, you, the, was your a, book was about, I think, yeah, a, my, my, a general who was former but general. I find, I find all of this very surprising because I'm looking at uh, opinion polls here. So President Kagame seems to be immensely popular. He got 99% of the vote at the last election. I mean, you don't get that unless you're a decent chap. I mean, even Putin only got 78% of the vote in Russia. Here he is in 99 I can only see President Xi as the uh, the only world who's actually doing better than him. So, that, so he must be yeah. doing something, right? Surely. Well, there was a wonderful exchange recently with a presidential spokeswoman who was asked about the uh, 98% of the vote that Kagame had got in the last elections. And she seemed to have struggled to understand why anyone would query that. I think most people who have lived and voted in democracies understand that if somebody allegedly won uh, uh, an election with that that level of popularity, it's because it's been rigged. And mm-hmm. and we know that because I, I interviewed as part of my book, I interviewed members of the of the regime who had been busy ballot, ballot stuffing, you know, during uh, one of the elections. And, and also another one told me about a marvellous conversation between members of the cabinet where they were sort of throwing numbers in the air and saying, 
well, should it be 70% or 90% or 99% or, you know, and they were debating what number they should give um, uh, Paul Kagame as his supposed uh, electoral win. So, I mean, the the, the elections have no validity. But but let me let me throw in one element, which which I I can imagine people here might say, well, okay, you know, look, it's not perfect. It isn't Switzerland. Uh, Nonetheless, we're sending people there to be safe. Now, these are foreigners uh, who come into the country, who are allowed to live there, and we've we've been shown the uh, the quarters, the hotel, the accommodation they'll be put in, which looks all right. Yeah. Isn't it okay for them because they're not going to be Rwandan dissidents? They're not going to be challenging the regime. They'll be likely very safe, and they have access to technology. It's very technologically advanced, Rwanda, comparatively. And then, in that sense, maybe it's quite a good place to be. And there's lots of work for them picking yeah. up the litter between the airport and the <laughs> conference. Well, the thing is, if you talk to, um, uh, I, I had this conversation with the former head of the opposition, Victoire Ngabire, and she'll say, you know, uh, they'll be okay as long as they they don't have any um, interactions with the authorities, you know, because the moment they do, that's when they'll see the the the, the steel hand, uh, you know, within the the velvet glove, uh, because she's experienced that, you know, um, she can't leave the country, um, uh, she can't run for elections, she can't be members of her political party, um, uh, she spent eight years in in prison um, uh, for trying to run uh, to challenge Kagame in the elections. Um, so yeah, it's fine as long as you you. Can keep well away from all politics and well away from the Rwandan authorities in any in any form. But let's not forget that... It'd be like sending them to Hong Kong, wouldn't it? It'd be like well, saying we're going to send it, refugees to Hong Kong. Yeah, I, I'm afraid it would be worse than that. I'm uh, more like sending them to North Korea. Um, I mean, mm. let's not oh. forget that a lot of the people who are fleeing, yes, okay, they may be fleeing because they want to, uh, you know, earn a living. I mean, that some of them will undoubtedly be economic migrants, but a lot of them will also be fleeing the countries where they were living because they they're fleeing political uh, repression and and the idea that they would um then keep their heads down stay out of politics not express their own views um you know could be completely meek and subservient in the way that you know the the authorities would like rwandan citizens to be i think that's really um uh, not, <laughs> really not, quite hard but, to imagine but what about so, for example one of the things that's come up in in the supreme court and elsewhere they've been concerned about some of these people are fleeing because as you they have special reasons so perhaps they are transgender, LGBTQ, for example, or have particular religions that are unacceptable wherever they are, or perhaps where women are oppressed. Now, women, at least, are very well represented in the Rwandan parliament. It's a very equal society, we're told. Yes, and that's always the point that they like to bring up. And if you if you read the kind of PR um, kind of <laughs> readouts that are often written about Rwanda, women in parliament always, uh, they always rate very high. Uh, my question is always, uh, well, just let's examine what kind of power those women, those women MPs really have, because um, Parliament doesn't have much power in Rwanda. Uh, Parliament, you know, power in Rwanda is held by one man, and it is um, Paul Kagame. I mean, that's the whole point. It's a it's a police state. It's an authoritarian state. So it, it's lovely to have women in Parliament. I'd certainly prefer to have as many women in Parliament, you know, um, uh, that, <laughs> uh, that we can see. I mean, we would love to see that rolled out across Africa. But if they don't really have any power uh, to challenge the executive, I, I don't think it's it's much more than symbolic. What about LGBT rights, for example? That's something that regularly comes up in asylum claims. Would, would asylum 
claimers who who are in the LGBTQ community, would they be a risk in, in Rwanda? Uh, normally, uh, Rwanda is very friendly towards LGBTQ. And, and in that way, it's been very careful to um, establish a distance and difference between itself and Uganda, where if you've been following Uganda recently, it um, it lost a, a, World Bank, a World Bank funding program because uh, it's um, just passed a, a law which is overtly uh, and draconianly anti-homosexual. This, is, this has been a constant theme coming up in Uganda. Uh, my own reading, uh, so Rwanda is very proud that it, it, it doesn't have the, the same kind of legislation and it makes a big deal of, of it when it is dealing with Western countries, because again, it, it has recognized that that's a Western concern. Um, my own feeling is that Rwandans are no more or less um, macho uh, <laughs> or, uh, or um, sort of normative, normative in, their, in their leanings than Ugandans or Congolese or Kenyans. Um, and, and again, I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a government position that they know serves them well when it comes to um, cajoling and persuading the Western donors they deal so with I, on, on whom they rely for aid, you know. I'm sure there are people, though, who are convinced that this is a, a good idea. I mean, a lot of the, obviously, a lot of the Tory party um, that are in government, plus their, you know, plus their membership, seem to think it's a fantastic idea. Uh, and, and I wonder whether you will have dissuaded any of them, because they may be saying, well, OK, it's a dictatorship. And yes, if you got get on the wrong side of this dictator, then perhaps your life will be somewhat shortened. But if you behave and, uh, you know, just be a, a, you know, a good refugee and, uh, you know, do a job that keeps become the country, a citizen, become a citizen and allow the country to grow. And, you know, here's a man who's got aspirations to make his country wealthier. Uh, then, you know, th- then what's wrong with that? Well, I, I think it's just it's so wrong on so many ways. I also think it's contradictory because, um, you know, on the one hand, we're saying this is going to be such an effective and terrifying deterrent that everyone will stop crossing the channel but at the same time but it's a fantastic it, place you know it's supposed to be a deterrent or this terrifying deterrent but at the same time we're assuring everyone in you know that uh, this is a safe place and and and, and refugees will well asylum seekers will prosper there so you can't really have it both ways but but my biggest objection to it is is that uh, you know you can object to this this policy in, in terms of you know the whole principle of offshore processing i think there are plenty of grounds for objecting to that uh, but but my objection is is the choice of rwanda i can't think of a worse country to choose um uh, because effectively what rwanda has done is it's bought the silence of the british government on the fact that it practices energetic uh, this energetic campaign of transnational repression, uh, its own human rights record at home, and what it's doing in Eastern Congo. And, and because we are so desperate to, 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 to sort of send out this message to asylum seekers, the British government, which used to be outspoken on these issues and used to call the Rwandan government uh, gently to account, has now uh, become completely silent. And I think that's really shameful. So, so the answer to the question, is it safe? And, and there's a, a legal line that it is safe and, and certain officials have to regard it as safe in English law. Your answer to that question, is it safe, would be? I would say read the ruling. If you spend, if you want to sort of spend a few hours reading the Supreme Court ruling, it was very well expressed, very clear. And it makes it clear why uh, even within its own terms, 
this um, this policy is not safe on the many, many grounds. And there were arguments in there that I hadn't thought of when I was, because uh, I was asked by some of the legal chambers what, what I thought of that policy and to send in uh, some, some you know, uh, witness testimony of my own. Uh, and when I was reading it, the, the Supreme Court um, ruling is is pretty definitive and it's, and it's very, very convincing. And it was unanimous. So I would just say to people, read that ruling. Mm. So what sort of things that you hadn't thought of had they... Uh... I was not aware of the fact that the Rwandans, when presented with people uh, with asylum seekers from countries like um, Iraq or Afghanistan, um, uh, i.e. places where there were conflict, you know, there was active conflict, that it had a track record of sending those people back to those countries and refusing um, to accept them uh, as uh, as asylum seekers and, uh, and that's that's what's called refoulement and, and they've, um, they've talked about how the you know the british government is saying well we'll make sure the law on the ground is correct and that it uh, uh, it actually no refoulement i think is what we're talking about where people get yes, sent on to other countries yes. and that, that 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 will be changed and the rules will be as they should be but what you're saying is in a way the rules the law in Rwanda perhaps doesn't really matter because it's not necessarily going to be a deal. I mean, exactly. How would we know anyway whether it's a deal well, or not? how What's would we mo- know? Yeah. And w- what we do know is the judiciary is uh, highly politicised in Rwanda. We've seen that in very high-profile cases like the high-profile terrorism case that was brought against Paul Rusesabagina. It was very obvious from the way that was conducted. He, he was the man at the, the, the Hotel Rwanda film was based on and the, the man who uh, looked after or tried to save some people yeah. during the genocide. Yeah, and he was, um, you know, sentenced to 25 years and in jail for on terrorism charges. And if you followed that trial closely, which I did and many others did, it was very obviously a politicized trial. It was denounced by the American Bar Association as being a sham trial. You know, it was a demonstration of Kagame's power to uh, reach out, um, kidnap somebody who had become a very vocal and annoying uh, human uh, critic of his human rights regime, bring him home, uh, and then and throw him into a, a prison cell and throw away the key. Um, so if you followed that, you did not end up thinking that this was a, a judicial system that was free from um, political interference or presidential interference. Um, so, you know, I, and I think that was a point, you know, that the, the, the Supreme Court ruling talks about that issue. Um, one thing we've been told is that, you know, British judges and Commonwealth judges could be sent out there to sort of help the Rwandans in their asylum process because it's it's been found one. And so they would be helping Rwandan officials to deal with these cases. Uh, and you just sort of think, do you know what you're dealing with? Do you know, you know, of the kind of micromanagement that uh, that President Paul Kagame exerts over every area of the country, you know, from the the army to the human rights sector, to the workings of parliament, uh, you know, uh, to the workings of the press? Uh, you know, do you, do you really think that he's going to let British judges and Commonwealth judges run his asylum process. Well, I wonder whether he's actually expecting he'll ever see anybody from uh, yeah. from Britain there. So if you look at the tax revenue in 2021, uh, it was 1.8 trillion Rwandan francs. That's about 1.1 billion pounds. We've already paid, by all accounts, about 240 million. So, uh, so we've paid close to a quarter of their tax revenue without anyone ever having arrived in the country. So it's very clear what the interest is from him in this. It's helping to fund his government. Balance his budget. I, I think there's something quite curious at play, which is, um, of course, our aid budget used to be a lot bigger. 
and it was shrunk uh, under the Conservative Party. And we know, for example, that Andrew Mitchell, who is a is a deep admirer and and a sort of great champion of Paul Kagame, was very you know, reluctant to have to uh, deal with this much smaller budget. And and I'm sure he wants to sort of increase aid to places like Rwanda, but to Rwanda in particular. So what you have is uh, Rwanda and other countries in, in Africa being told, you know, you're going to get less aid in future because we, we you know, Britain is, is scaling it back. Suddenly the immigration deal comes along and it means that we can up aid to Rwanda. Um, so it's just another way of funneling aid money to Rwanda. without having to ask for all you know nasty things like well if we're going to give you aid then you probably ought to become a democracy and have an open election Uh, you know I guess it avoids those difficult questions yes and I think the the lack of accountability what is this aid been spent on I mean you know what what is the money that's been been sent to Rwanda supposedly on helping these uh, asylum seekers who who haven't yet materialized there what what has it been spent on you know in integrating them into Rwandan society, but there aren't any, you know. Um, and and also, I, I was a bit shocked because when cleverly announced the deal in Kigali, in Kigali, he explicitly said no, no money had changed hands. And now we're discovering that a huge amount of money did change hands and and is something, going to be changing hands. Yeah, something going on. Well, as we draw this to a conclusion, Michaela, it's been very interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I mean, some of the some of what you're saying about it is is even beyond what I knew in in terms of the the actual nature of 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 the regime and, and really quite shocking. But I suppose you know, again, the central question is Rwanda safe? The fact that it's being defined in English law, in theory, or could be uh, as being safe. I mean, the answer to the question, absolutely, from your point of view, is no. In terms of these asylum seekers, I mean, that's very clear, isn't it? I don't think Rwanda is a safe country for Rwandan citizens. So I don't think it's any safer for asylum seekers being sent from Britain. And just the man behind all of this. So you've both met him, presumably, mm, Kagame. Yeah. Is he is is he just a very charismatic man who can just uh, well, get get away with so much just because of his personality? Well, you've probably seen him more recently than I have, Michaela, but, but when I, I, I met inter- him... I interviewed him, I think, a couple of times. It was a long time yeah. ago now. But he doesn't do charisma. He he, he does kind of anti-charisma. Uh, but mm. it's equally effective. I mean, he's not yeah, charming. Yeah. He smiles very little. He's always extremely stern. He comes across as um, extremely forbidding. I think you'd agree, uh, well, Roger. He, he uh, is that, definitely. Yeah, but but people he did actually like tell that. me a joke at one point, but I think oh. I was required to laugh. <laughs> but I think... I I think that is what donors like, donor uh, officials and foreign diplomats and mm. and uh, foreign ministers, government ministers. They like that. They think, oh, we're dealing with someone who who who, who means what he says, who, who doesn't waste time, who who's proactive, who gets things done. And I think, you know, that's what Kagame trades on, this image yeah. of he's the man who gets things done. And, you yeah. know, I can sort out your problems in this instance. He, he knows and what so to say to people. I, when people call him charismatic i always think that's slightly the wrong word um mm. i think he's he's um he's intimidating mm. um he's convincing um he's impressive but i certainly i don't think charisma is the right terminology well it's, it's been uh, very interesting everything you've had to say michaela and the answer to our question you know is it safe the answer is no which raises the other question what the hell is going on well, but that's a, that's a that's question an, for another that's day that's another podcast yeah, yeah i think that's i think really it's all a story about british politics and i think yeah. what's dismaying yeah. to me is that the rwandan elements are just going so un, under reported yeah. and undercovered it's kind of a bit of a colonial mentality still in a way we use them rather than 
than yeah. help them. Yes, the and I mean, for me, the ultimate irony was to hear Rwanda warning Britain that it wouldn't be ready to break international laws. <laughs> that was quite uh, and something. you kind of think, how dare you? You know, Rwanda. <laughs> yeah, but, that's, but isn't, that, isn't that another case of, look, I've taken your money. I really don't want the people over here, so I'm looking for an out. I mean, I, that's how I read that. But, but, anyway. but this is a government that has repeatedly been denounced by the UN yeah. for arming, harboring, uh, feeding uh, rebel movements, including the M23, that are rampaging across Eastern Congo. That is a violation of international law. And then it lectures the British government on breaking international law. I mean, that well, we played right into their Ironies pile up on all sides. Mm. Michaela, thank you so much for being Thanks, with Michaela. us. And, uh, yeah, we will see where this all develops, and uh, we may well come back to you if, okay. if any of these people actually turn up in Rwanda. We'll see. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. I tell you what, if you are a regular listener to this podcast and you've mm. just listened to this, you've got to tell everybody else about it, haven't you? Because this is, I feel like, you know, we've covered some important topics. Oh, yeah. But what we've just heard in the last half an hour is pretty scary stuff. And, yeah. you know, to, to tell everyone to have a and, listen. And frankly, it's, surreal yeah. in a way that the government obviously has this rather bizarre view of something that virtually anyone who knows about Rwanda thinks isn't true. Yeah. So uh, we can... Spread the word. I mean, we we could do it with the extra listeners, but also, also you know, it would be, you know, it's important stuff that everyone needs to be aware of. But let's talk about something else important, which is... A little bit lighter, maybe. Lighter, but still important. Next week is the week before Christmas, and uh, we're all out buying Christmas presents. Or sitting on our computers doing it. Yeah, perhaps as well. So, yeah, just how is is our behaviour changing in terms of what we are buying for Christmas? And and, and, you know, there's also a question about, you know, just uh, about present giving generally. Yes. Uh, Phil's just, not giving any presents this year, by the way. <laughs> I'm trying to get He's out of it. He's working his by, way towards that. Yeah, but I mean, we'll look at the changing pattern of it, but also just consumerism as well. You know, as consu- it's a question we used to ask a lot around Christmas yeah. time, wasn't it? Has consumerism gone too far? Yeah. And is and, and is Christmas really just well, the epitome of... Is it the, changing? The, is it, are we mm. just all, all buying more and more and more tech and, uh, and, and that kind of thing, and it becomes more materialistic? Or, or mm. are we perhaps post-COVID taking a slightly different view? Many people have suggested that our values may have changed. How yeah. has that been reflected in the way in which people give each other things? We've got an expert to talk about that. I'm weaving a basket for you, Roger. I'm Thank not you. quite sure it's going to be ready in Is time. Is that a metaphor or? <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Well, when I say I'm weaving, I'm, I, I was thinking of, I haven't even started it yet, so it might be a bit late for Christmas. Okay, all right. It might be Christmas next year. But all anyway, right. look, yeah, but I mean, the whole point, you know, is mm. because you, you spend money on somebody, something for somebody, it means nothing, doesn't it, really? Well, I don't so, know. <laughs> it depends how much you spend. Yes, that basket's <laughs> going to mean a lot as long as you put lots of money into it as well as the, as the weaving. Right. Anyway, next week, yeah, Christmas shopping, is it changing? That's next week on The Y Curve. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening today. Bye. The Y Curve.